My father was very, very lucky to have older brothers who taught him how to be a tailor. He was unlucky in that my father was the ninth child of nine kids whose father abandoned the family when my dad was two. Poverty in the city of Juarez, the border town south of El Paso, Texas, where I was born. So my dad grew up super, super poor. Like, kid, here's the guitar, you're four years old, go sit in the street and sing songs, poor. Okay, like, poor, poor, poor. My name is Graciela Tiscareño Sato, and I'm the daughter of Mexican immigrants, born in Texas, Berkeley educated, served in the Air Force for 10 years, had some corporate marketing experiences, and ultimately, like many of us do, became an entrepreneur. And I founded a company called Gracefully Global Group. We're an LLC. And we create content that showcases the positive contributions of Latinos in the USA. Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Well, hello again, and it is grand to be back with you for another episode of Life on Planet Earth. We cover all things economics, financial, cultural, and entertaining, and sometimes funny. And we seek hope where others find only despair amidst doom and gloom-mongering and our existential crisis of hope. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. And you just heard a small wee clip there from my interview with Gracialo Tescareno Seto, a successful U.S. Latino businesswoman based in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's the president and founder, as you just heard, of Gracefully Global Group. What a clever wee name. And I caught up with her for this episode on the stunning success of the U.S. Latino business community in America. We'll pick up on my interview with Graciela later in this episode, but first let's look at the persuasive evidence for this Latino renaissance, an economic fiesta, call it what you want. The average revenue of Latino-owned restaurants, retail stores, construction companies and other small businesses in the U.S. has soared by an amazing 46.5% in the past year and that exceeds the earnings growth of non-Latino businesses in the US by as much as 12% according to a recent annual study by online lender Biz2Credit. Here's Rohit Arora, CEO of Biz2Credit, who spearheaded his company's latest study of 3,000 Latino-owned businesses in America. Yeah, so I think the perception has been that because of the immigration crackdown that uh, the Trump administration has done, you know, that has impacted Latino businesses, uh, which is can be true from a perception aspect. But what we are seeing on ground is the impact of the tax cuts, the impact of the deregulation and the impact of a government being so much pro-business, you know, compared to the earlier governments. You know, we are seeing actually a lot of positive impact of that happening across, uh, you know, small businesses. And that is actually helping Latino businesses even more. We'll be back in a moment to Rohit Arora of Biz2Credit and then pick up on my interview with the amazing U.S. Latino business owner, Graciela Tiscareno Seto. Stay tuned. 
A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. And I'm here with Rohit Arora, uh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Biz2Credit. And he came up with some remarkable statistics recently on the stunning success of Latino-owned businesses in New York and throughout the United States. Uh, welcome to the show, Aurora. Just tell us about what you actually found in this research. Yeah, so this uh, research, uh, which was conducted by Biz2Credit, uh, looked at uh, the number of credit applications that we got in last one year and uh, the results uh, have been very heartening uh, for the Latino owned businesses in the country. We have seen a 46% growth in their top line and also we have seen that you know uh, the businesses overall have done pretty well both in terms of number of credit applications coming from Latino owned businesses which has jumped by 23% from the last year survey that we did and also the overall health of these businesses have improved significantly compared to where they were in the last two or three years. And why are Latino-owned businesses doing so well? What explains this? Uh, there are two big reasons. One, obviously, is that the overall economy has grown at a fair clip. The tax cuts have been very beneficial for businesses. It has given them a lot of money to go and reinvest in their businesses. It has given them a lot of confidence that uh, the government is finally... Uh, you know, is a pro-business uh, government. It has deregulated a lot of stuff, which has been very helpful for them. And the other aspect is that a lot of Latino-owned businesses have also matured over time. Uh, so if we look at the five big states, uh, that includes California, Texas, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. We have seen that, you know, businesses have matured. The business owners have accumulated more capital. They have more experience. And with the overall economy doing well, you know, the Latino-owned businesses are more confident and they're also reinvesting more money back into their businesses, which was not the case earlier. So describe the kind of businesses we're talking about. I believe they're small scale. And what do they do? Uh, so typically the Latino businesses are small scale. You know, the average revenue uh, of the Latino-owned businesses uh, who have applied on Bistro Credit Marketplace has been around less than half a million dollars in revenue. Uh, at the same point of time, you know, they are traditionally in uh, services businesses, uh, food services, retail, accommodation, you know, typically serving their own larger communities uh, in these markets, which are, uh, which have big Hispanic population. And we have also seen that, you know, they are the businesses that are actually typically family run. And, uh, and we have seen them grown quite a bit. So a great example is transportation and warehousing because of the e-commerce boom a lot of businesses uh, the latino owned businesses which have been in the transportation business actually have gained a lot of uh, new market share and also it, they have been helped by a growing economy low oil prices and the overall growth of warehousing and transportation as a great business opportunity for them now so these are small to medium scale employers. You know, how many people would they have on staff? What kind of wages do they pay? So typically, you know, these are the businesses which will employ anywhere from two to three people at the lower end to 30, 40 people at the higher end, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, you know, typically they start at the minimum wage level, uh, but some of these businesses are paying a very decent, uh, you know, now 
salaries and wages to their employees. Uh, and at the same point of time, we've also found that, you know, one reason for growth of their revenue also has been the impact of minimum wages uh, because they are in industries where the minimum wage has impacted these industries that has meant that they've been able to raise their own prices that has also meant that their expenses have grown at a faster clip compared to last few years uh, but the good news there is still is that their revenues have also got uh, you know much uh, further along uh, and they have got this uplift uh, from the minimum wage increase, both in consumer spending as well as uh, their ability to raise prices of their products and so. And we'll get back to Rohit in a moment, but now let's pick up my fascinating interview with Graciela Tescareno Seto, a successful U.S. Latino businesswoman in the San Francisco Bay Area. And like many immigrants and sons and daughters of immigrants to America, her family background, quite literally, is one of rags to riches and finding the American dream. She first talks about her dad's early struggles as he moved from Mexico to the U.S. So, but his older brothers, as he got older, taught him the skill making clothing. And ultimately, that is how my father came to the United States. His older brothers got work in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, creating clothing for the stars. I think that's why I gravitate to that story I told you earlier about mm -hmm. uh, Art, who's in Beverly Hills now, is because that tailoring. That. Yeah, so my name is Graciela Tiscareño Sato, and I'm the daughter of Mexican immigrants. And I founded a company called Gracefully Global Group. We're an LLC. And we create content that showcases the positive contributions of Latinos in the USA. And we do it through educational publishing, marketing, digital courses. And so there's physical products, digital products, and a lot of live presentations um, all over the country. And we've also exported the products to over seven countries outside the USA. Yeah, always expanding into new markets. So I'm very happy to tell you that this year we will celebrate our 10th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Well, when you come here and you don't have anything, you're starting over, or you had an education, you had a home, but then you fled Cuba, some examples of the people I've interviewed, you're, you're starting over, whether you have resources or not. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that situation, you are in automatic conservation mode, right? So you're conserving what you have, you have resources, you get stuff, you reuse, you reuse, you conserve, and it becomes out of necessity many times, right? Mm -hmm. But what I discovered, and I thought it was just the way I grew up, but I started hearing it over and over again, is, you know, when you practice reusing, recreating, like, you know, the curtains can become dresses, <laughs> mm. or plastic containers can become, you know, food containers, or socks can become clothing for Barbie dolls. There's thousands of examples that I've heard. When you grow up as a child in a home that is practicing conservation and reuse, you mm. grow up with what I like to call a creative advantage. And that's the term I use when I do a lot of presentations and keynotes at universities is you have a creative mm. advantage because you're always inventing with what you have, something from nothing, over people with money who grow up throwing away the ripped jeans mm -hmm. and heading for the shopping mall to get a new pair instead of doing what we did is cutting them up and turning them into nice, cute denim purses, mm -hmm. right? So this creativity, conservation, constant invention cycle that's typical in my home when I grew up 
and I have discovered is typical in many, many immigrant homes of people that I interview, that's the perfect and powerful foundation for innovation and ultimately entrepreneurship because you're literally, <laughs> you have decades of experience creating something from nothing and you have no fear of doing that by the time you reach your 20s. Now, you, you made me think of um, this man that I met at a Silicon Valley Latino Leadership Summit that we have every year at Stanford. His name is Art Lewin, and he's a very successful, bespoke clothing manufacturer, a designer. And he has multiple shops in Beverly Hills. He dresses the stars. And he shows a picture. Have you seen those signs uh, along the border mm -hmm. of Southern California where it has, like, the yellow warning sign, and then you have, like, a family crossing the street? Careful, there's a, okay. So he shows that, and he circles the little kid that's getting pulled by the mom as they cross the street. He points that little kid because that was me at age four. That's how we got here. He says, mm -hmm. and I arrived here in the United States, PhD. Mm -hmm. Poor, hungry, and driven. And then he starts it that way. It's so powerful because that's it right there is, is that idea that, you know, and now, you know, now he's literally crafted this multi-million dollar clothing business to Hollywood stars and elite people and custom clothing. Um, but it's, it's a lot of that because you have to invent and problem solve. And then again, when you put the constant innovation to it, that's definitely why immigrant families and, um, you know, large portion of the, what is it, 40% of the Fortune 500 were founded by immigrants. If we're looking at why immigrant uh, communities have so many businesses, I mean, if you've seen the last census numbers, mm. the Latino community creates businesses at three times the national average. And if you look at just the number of the women, Latinas, we create businesses at six times the national average. So it is really incredible how we're just prone to business creation, and it's no accident. Again, it's that whole upbringing. Um, you know, as a child of an immigrant, if you're born in the United States, your parents might have professional degrees and they might eventually be working in a professional setting. Many times, not. So many times, uh, janitor. So my friend Arnold, his dad was cleaning doctor's offices mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So he tells me as a five-year-old child, his dad and his mom, actually they both work together cleaning doctor's offices. And he saw how much his parents revered doctors. And as a little kid cleaning up doctor's offices, that was his exposure to doctors. Long story short, after his Berkeley career and an IBM career, my friend Arnold became a medical doctor finally found his calling, but he says, I never would have had that idea if I hadn't been hanging out for years as a child, cleaning yes. <laughs> doctor's offices with my parents and getting exposed to them, and so now he has a private practice, so he has his own business, in addition to being uh, a professor at the medical school at UCSF in San Francisco, so that's an example of your parents are working somewhere doing whatever, but they bring you with them. That's an amazing story. You get that exposure. Yeah. Tell us that's about your own back, your own family background. Your parents came from Mexico. That's how my dad came here with that skill, and so he came in the '60s. So he tells stories of dressing Gregory Peck and Doris Day, and so really being in Hollywood and being part of that American culture and making nice money enough to go back and visit his family in Mexico. So that's how my father came on one of those trips. He was visiting his 
sister who lived across the street from my mom, and she used to be his teacher, or actually my dad's sister used to be my mother's teacher, and that's how my parents met. It's a crazy kind of coincidental story, but that's how they met. And then they moved to the United States together uh, in uh, late middle of 60s, 66. And then I was born in El Paso, uh, like I said, about a quarter mile north of the border. So that is how they came here. And then my mom, she stayed home and she had five children. I, I was the only one born in Texas, John. Everybody else was born in Colorado. My mom did finish high school in, uh, in Mexico. She always wanted to add additional money to the family. So she always found work at home like counting fishing hooks, I remember, or here's some fishing pole and we need you to wrap the thread around and attach the guides to the fishing pole. You know, just anything that a woman could do at home, making stuff for companies to get extra money while still being there mm-hmm. for her kids, my mom did that. So she was always enterprising away. Very enterprising. And then eventually, the you know, wedding dresses, making cakes for people. So she eventually did start her own business making wedding cakes and doing alterations for wedding dresses. So again, I'm the oldest of five kids born to Mexican immigrants. So I did want to go to school. Um, and so I found my counselor in the high school and I kept saying, so how does a kid like me go to school? I, I hear it's possible, but you know, in this country, I hear that's possible, but how does that happen? Because I had no examples of any college educated people in my neighborhood. So my counselor, God bless her, said, come to my house for dinner. I want you to meet my husband. He was from a large family from Appalachia, and he will tell you how he went to college. And that is how I learned about the Air Force ROTC scholarship, the four-year scholarship, John, that allowed me to apply to any college I wanted to, and ultimately I went to UC Berkeley uh, to become an Air Force officer. And I traded four years of my life for a four-year scholarship. That was the deal when I got the scholarship. But ultimately I was selected to go to flight training. And so when I graduated from Berkeley, I increased my commitment from four years to seven years because I accepted the opportunity to go fly for the Air Force. Well, a recent study by Biz2Credit showed that the Latino community in the United States in terms of revenues, profit growth, and other metrics was head and shoulders above its rivals and competitors. So one of the things that we do really well in the community and I'm coming off of just uh, reading the the latest work of the Latino Business Alliance that's uh, out of Stanford that's really tracking the revenue and the growth of Latino-owned businesses. You know, a lot of a lot of what we're finding as they do that research is something that I've experienced, and and that's this: we launch businesses with an incredible amount of support. We have a big tribe when we launch. Uh, Family, friends, neighborhood, all that. And we build community for everything that we do. I mean, it's like just culturally, you're not going to see somebody go out and do a business all by herself and go, hey, out of business, and like, I I launched it. No, you're going to have so much support that you're building before you launch because you know that the community is why you're going to be successful. So it's the, the tribe that supports us and the fact that, yeah, you might have a big family, but your family's not going to be your only buyers, but it's the fact that your family knows thousands of people that are all going to tell. I remember somebody at Stanford said, we are the original retweeters. Mm-hmm. We Latinas. 
<laughs> you tell me something and I'm going to retweet it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to share. We over-index on social media. we got to tell our friends about products, companies, book services that we love and support. Recommendations are gold. So literally, like when I launch a book, John, I've got multiple hundreds of people who are thanked in the pages of my books for being early supporters mm-hmm. because they've already put money for pre-orders in. They're ready to post the day of the launch. They're ready to help me have an Amazon bestseller the day we launch it. So literally that sense of community is how we launch so many businesses. And and then we have this other phenomenon happening now where we're creating communities and directories of Latino-owned businesses mm. that we can support each other, like actually bring into the forefront, uh, you know, like there's a, a hashtag shop Latinx on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And she just launched, she's got 600 businesses already listed, like in two months. Yeah, just shop Latinx is her hashtag, and then I forget the name of the store, but it's, it's using that hashtag. So that's like, hey, here's 600 more businesses that we can do business with. Wow, like people that are creating businesses to bring awareness to those communities. So it's like embedded communities that uh, that help each other be successful. Well, so I mean, the Latino community in many neighborhoods very visible, obvious presence. There are networks out there that you can tap into quite easily. In the physical world. But when you are a business that's only online and what you do is you import handmade products that are made by indigenous women that happen to be your cousins in Honduras, Mm, mm, (laughs) right? So mm. that kind of, it's such a unique business and we all want to get behind her, right? Mm. So, So that's very prevalent. Online businesses now are super, super prevalent as well. Can you just tell us anything about your sales figures, revenue, growth, profit, and how things look? What's your forecasts? Well, what I can tell you is that in the fourth year of my business, I replaced my salary from Silicon Valley. So I was able to actually fully replace my salary in the fourth year with the revenue that we're bringing in. Here's Rohit Aurora of biz to credit for more on his findings on the U.S. Latino business community's success. And then we'll come back to U.S. Latino business owner Graciela Tescareno Seto. Yeah, so what we see, the Latino-owned businesses are fairly active. Uh, among the immigrant you know, business groups, I would say they will rank second after the Asian business owners. Asian uh, business owners are extremely active. They have grown very large in this country. Uh, Latino businesses are still on the smaller side, but they are pretty active now. Uh, and I would say they are among two or three big ethnic groups, uh, which are also growing very quickly from the business uh, presence also. Now, there was some talk earlier that the Latino business community was falling behind under the Trump administration because of his policies. But your research shows the opposite. Yeah, so I think the perception has been that because of the immigration crackdown that uh, the Trump administration has done, you know, that has impacted Latino businesses, uh, which is can be true from a perception aspect. But what we are seeing on ground is the impact of the tax cuts, the impact of the deregulation and the impact of a government being so much pro-business, you know, compared to the earlier governments. You know, we are seeing actually a lot of positive impact of that happening across, uh, you know, small businesses. And that is actually helping Latino businesses even more because they are in sectors, you know, which have not been impacted by the tariff wars. Uh, so that's a very important aspect that, you know, they have actually been fairly insulated. And because of that, you know, they have actually uh, are in a much better position today than what they were even 12 or 24 months back. 
uh, while some of the other subcategories of small businesses have been impacted by tariff wars. Now, what are some of their biggest challenges? Uh, I would say three big challenges. Still, you know, the number of Latino-owned businesses, you know, who grow uh, from, like, say, $300,000, $400,000 a year to a million plus is still half of the mainstream businesses. So typically, you know, 6% or more of the business, small businesses which start in U.S., Go and achieve a revenue of million dollar plus. Uh, for the Latino-owned businesses, only it's it's still only three percent. So 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 that's a big gap. I think the second big gap is that their average credit score is still a lot less than compared to you know mainstream businesses or even other uh, immigrant-owned businesses. Now what that does is that uh, you know uh, reduces their options for credit and that also increases the cost of the credit that they can get access to. Uh, the third challenge for them is that, you know, how do they transform themselves from just being family-owned businesses and small restaurants and small bodegas to becoming bigger businesses, using digital technologies more, getting more internet savvy, more te- tech savvy, and also more language savvy. You know, I think those are the big challenges for the Latino. Uh, and of course, there are some very large Latino-owned businesses in America outside this group of small business owners that you talk about. Absolutely. You know, we have some very good examples of very large Latino-owned businesses which have done really well in the country. The key is that, you know, how do you take those successes and how do you percolate it down to the larger community? And how do you make some of these smaller businesses also grow faster, but also at the same point of time get more profitable because more profits will mean more reinvestment and that will also mean more jobs getting created. So your company is Biz2Credit. Its main office is in New York City and you have satellite offices in India, I believe, and elsewhere. Your recent research went viral on the Latino-owned business community. Were you surprised with that? Yeah, so I think, yeah, it was a little surprising and it was not surprising also because I think there has been a lot of negative commentary around, you know, what has happened to Latino businesses over the last two, three years without any underlying data. So I think this data has clearly shown that the trend is actually in the other direction. So I think a lot of people were surprised and that's why we got a very good reception for this uh, you know data driven research because this clearly shows that you know when there are tax cuts for businesses when there's deregulation for businesses you know it actually impacts businesses and actually it impacts those businesses which are underserved and underrepresented in the mainstream you know business community in the country so i think that's a very key finding the easier you make it for businesses to operate and work the immigrant owned businesses or traditionally the businesses which are smaller will actually thrive more and more and of course, you mentioned the tariff wars, which are on again, off again. That doesn't really affect the Latino business community that you interact with mostly. Absolutely. So the good news there is that the, the Latino business community is mostly in the industries or in the regions which are, you know, like pretty much self-contained kind of stuff. This is all local demand and local fulfillment of this demand. Uh, they are not big manufacturers, they are not big importers, they don't use a lot of raw material coming in from other countries. So I think that has helped them to get insulated from the tariff wars. And that has also, the, the consumer spending has shifted more uh, more from products to experiences. And as that is happening, you know, the Latino-owned businesses are gaining more market share because they are an experienced business. And that's where a lot of the millennials and a lot of the younger consumers are spending more of their money now. Why are 20 veterans a day taking their own lives? In this new gripping, brutally honest memoir, 
Iraq War veteran Tom Voss reveals the answer and an unexpected solution to the veteran suicide epidemic. Driven to the brink of suicide by the moral injury of war, Voss walked 2,700 miles across America in search of healing. What he found was something medication and talk therapy couldn't give him, relief from the guilt, shame, and sorrow that had been torturing him for years. A relief that came in the most unexpected form, meditation and sacred breathing techniques that shattered his understanding of war and himself. Dr. David Shulkin, Ninth Secretary of the VA, says where war ends will inspire countless others, leaving them with a sense of purpose and hope. Brian Kinsella of Stop Soldier Suicide calls where war ends a captivating personal journey written with a compelling urgency. For veterans, their families, and anyone suffering from trauma, where war ends offers an antidote to the moral injury epidemic. Get your copy today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, or ask for it at your favorite library or independent bookstore. So what does the future hold for U.S. Latino business owner Graciela Tescarino Seto and her business in America? We end this episode on a high note with her outlook. We have a five-year plan to reach $2.3 million in sales with our digital products being sold to universities, just that one line of business. So it's all about the focus because there's different lines of business with different markets and different focuses. So that's our plan in the next five years. And then on the publishing side, I do want to begin to publish other people's work that meet the mission of showcasing the positive contributions of Latino Americans in the USA. And can you give us a website address if people want to reach you and learn more about your products? Yeah, the best place to go is gracefullyglobal.com. Gracefullyglobal.com. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.